a reading from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Finally, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you learn from us how you ought to live and to please God, as in fact you are doing, you should do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication, that each one of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one wrong or exploit a brother or sister in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we have already told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God did not call us to impurity, but to holiness. Therefore, whoever rejects this rejects not human authority, but God, who also gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning love of the brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anyone write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, beloved, to do so more and more, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we directed you, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Jesus answered him, Those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. I have said these things to you, while I am still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I am coming to you. If you love me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father, because the Father is greater than I. And now that I have told you this before it occurs, so that when it does occur, you may believe. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we give, you thank you, we give you thanks for your word and for your spirit, and we ask now that you would be with us and bless us. May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and redeemer. Amen. What is God's will for your life? Do you ever wonder that? Do you ever agonize over that? 
And when you do, when you wonder or you're fretting or you're feeling stuck or confused around that question, what is God's will for my life, what kinds of things are you generally thinking about? If you're anything like me, you probably tend to wonder about specific things, right? Maybe it's a decision you have to make or it's a commitment that you may or may not make or it's a particular area of confusion, you know, what career path should I follow or what major should I declare or should I take this job or buy this house or take out this loan? Should I keep going in this relationship? Is this person the one? Should I keep waiting? Should I move on? Or maybe you've hit like a dead end or a, a wall of some rupture in a relationship and the question is, you know, how do I move forward? What do I do? How do I seek repair? Or maybe it's more general. What does God want me to do with my money, my emotional energy, my work life, my retirement, my passions, my creativity, my pain, my past, my future? And obviously, of course, every one of these questions is important. And God welcomes all of them. In fact, we, we know from Scripture and what Jesus shows us is that God actually desires for us to bring those questions to him in prayer. And as Tuck so helpfully spoke about last Sunday, these are the very sorts of questions that we need to be processing together among our spiritual friends and allies if we're going to continue to grow in wisdom and move forward in faith. But today as we come to this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, we find the Apostle Paul actually taking us a little bit deeper. He takes us to the question beneath all of those questions that we raise. And he takes us to the answer beneath all of the various answers that we seek. Beneath all the questions about all the particulars is this deeper question, who is God and what kind of person does God want me to be? Or if we want to think about it collectively, what kind of community does God want us to be? And beneath all of the answers that we seek about which one and when and how is this deeper answer that we discover here in this passage. God calls you, me, us, to be holy. This is the will of God, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, your sanctification, which is to say this, it's your process of growing in holiness. But let's be honest, okay, right as we say it that way, as we name that, immediately that might not seem like a terribly satisfying answer, right? Is this person the one? Should I buy this house? Be holy. <laughs> not what I'm looking for. Thank you. We have a problem sometimes with answers like this, not only because we have a tendency to want impossibly easy answers, simple answers to our hard and complicated questions, but also because the word holiness can be a little bit of a trigger for some of us, probably. Because the word holiness makes us think of all sorts of things, perhaps some that are helpful, but perhaps many which might not be so helpful, because our various ideas of what holiness even is have been shaped by a church culture that I think may have largely misunderstood what holiness is. And a good litmus test for us, if you're going to think about whether your operative notion of holiness is in the same ballpark as what the Apostle Paul is talking about in this passage, a good litmus test is just this. Does your idea of holiness, however you experience that word or idea, does it make you think of 
angry, judgmental people who think they're better than you and everyone else? Or does it make you think of joyful people who make you more joyful when you're with them? Or when you think of what it means for you to be holy or for someone to be holy, do you think of people who excel in rule-following and put others to shame with their impressiveness and scrupulousness? Or do you think of people who abound in love and make others feel loved in their presence? Because when the Apostle Paul talks about holiness and the related process that, that called sanctification here in this passage, he's not talking about an exacting practice of applying Christian life principles. That's not at all what he's talking about. He's talking about participating in the life of the Holy One, the life of God himself, who has made himself known to us in Jesus and who has made his home among us in sending his spirit. Holiness for Paul is Christ-likeness. He knows no other concept of godliness or holiness other than that of living like Jesus toward God and others, which is to say that holiness is, for Paul, the cross-shaped self-sacrificial love of Jesus offered to God in gratitude and obedience for the sake of the benefit of others. Rowan Williams has this beautiful piece about holiness in his book titled Being Disciples, which I commend to you if you haven't read it. It's a short book. It's a really easy read. It's like six chapters. Well worth it if you haven't picked that up yet. But Williams describes how Jesus at the cross goes outside the city, right? To the place where people suffer and are humiliated, the place where people throw stuff out, including other people. In other words, Jesus shows us a kind of holiness that is not about withdrawing from the world and washing our hands of all the dirty and offensive things, but rather a kind of holiness that at its core is about going into the heart of where it's most difficult for human beings to be human. And he teases out the difference in that little chapter of his between being holy and being good. And he, he says very simply, the very good people make us feel worse. Holy people actually make you feel better than you are. The holy person, William says, somehow enlarges your world, makes you feel more yourself, opens you up, affirms you. They're not in competition. They're not saying, I've got something you haven't. They're showing us something that it's wonderful simply to have in the world. And he describes the holy people in his life, and he says this. He says, these are never people who make me feel complacent about myself. Far from it. They make me feel that there is hope for my confused and compromised humanity. God is big enough to deal with and work with actual compromised and imperfect people. Look, here is a life in which he has come alive. Real holiness somehow brings into my life this sense of opening up opportunity, changing things. And that opening up of opportunity for coming more and more alive in Christ is exactly what the Apostle Paul is keen to explore in this section of 1 Thessalonians 4 that we just read as he encourages the Thessalonian Christians in their faith and urges them to continue to grow in holiness. 
If you were here for last week's sermon on the passage that immediately precedes this one, uh, you may remember that what comes right before this part of the letter is a benediction. Paul erupts in prayer of blessing for the Thessalonian Christians, and he says this, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. And may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. You see, what Paul sees in the community there is that God has started something really good and beautiful in their midst. And he really does trust that God is carrying forward to completion that good work that he's begun. He's actually bringing them forward through this process of growth and holiness toward greater fullness and fruitfulness in the world. And it's on the basis of that prayer. It's on the basis of that benediction on that hope that Paul continues into this next section of the letter where we're going to find him encouraging and urging on the Thessalonians in particular ways. And so what we get here is we see Paul basically starting off by saying, you're doing well, so continue to grow more and more in the direction you're already growing. Which he describes in verse 1 is this way that the Thessalonians learned from Paul himself and Timothy and Silas and those who came who started the church among them and shared with them for the first time the life of God in Christ and the Spirit. He also describes it in verse 1 as a way of living that pleases God. And in verses 9 and 10, as a shared practice of loving one another in practical ways, he encourages them in all of these ways, saying, you are doing well. And Paul says, God is pleased with you when you live this way. Now let's pause. How does it sound to you when we talk about God being pleased with you because you live in a particular way? Do you get weirded out when we come across language like this about God being pleased with us when we live in the way that he desires. Well, some of us likely get hung up on these words uh, because we have a notion of God as one who's like impossible to please, right? A cranky God who's withholding, who uh, is pleased only in exacting and very measured out ways according to our latest performance review. Um, but that's not the only reason that we might get weirded out by something like this. We also can find uh, that it's dangerous to start talking about God being pleased with us in what we do. How could I, a sinful person who has seen and said and done and suffered so much that is just painful and wrong, possibly be pleasing to God? And how could we meaningfully speak about things that we do being pleasing to God without treading upon that terrain of works righteousness or earning God's favor, some transactional relationship where we do something for God and he repays us with favor? We can get weirded out by this language for a number of different reasons, but it's important that we recognize Paul is not talking about a transactional relationship with God. He's not talking about earning God's pleasure through doing things that God likes. He's talking about the delight of God, our Heavenly Father, who is already pleased with you, who loves you and delights with you and wants to see you grow up and is at work among you, growing you up, and who really does rejoice when you begin to take on life as a human being in a way that's beautiful and good and loving and compassionate. When you begin to live the way His beloved Son 
lived in an exemplary way. It's not earning any favor of God. It's actually unleashing the favor of God to let it captivate our imagination and empower us to live differently in the world as his beloved. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he said, God is pleased with you. Keep going. Keep growing in the same direction that you're already growing. This is God's will for you. And then he turns his attention to these two spheres of life in which the way of holiness that Jesus himself embodied and that he's calling the Thessalonians to, to mimic in, as what they've seen in Jesus and what they've also seen in Jesus' followers, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. There are two, two spheres of life in which Paul says the way of holiness is going to look different from the way of your average neighbor around you. The way of God's people who are taking seriously this life of following Jesus into the world, it's going to look different than the way of those outside of the community. And, and the two spheres that he begins to explore in this section are those of sexuality on the one hand and then work or economics on the other. And what Paul is basically saying is that for the Thessalonians, their process of growing in holiness and abounding in love will necessarily involve their engagement in practices that nurture the life of the Spirit within and among them, and that also reflect to the outside watching world the character of the God who has called them, saved them, who has loved them in Christ. It's the faithfulness, the goodness, the love of God that Jesus himself embodied and now calls his followers to embody together in communion with him. So we might say something like this. If we want a decent working definition of holiness, as Paul is talking about it, if we want to chew on it, in a way that maybe in more plain English for us. It's like holiness is like different in a good way. Or like different in a Jesus way, more specifically. Not different in like a toxic weird way. Not withdrawing from the world. Not retreating or trying to wash our hands of everything that we think is, you know, going to pollute us or corrupt us. But rather, to actually live like Jesus differently in the world but in the world. And I think this apostolic call to this kind of holiness is a really helpful corrective to us today. It's as relevant as it could possibly be. Why? Because as we look at the church in our world today and what it, what's happening as we've lost uh, our voice and lost our way in some ways, what has happened? We've allowed the polarization that characterizes the life of our world to make its way right into the church in a way that we really don't look very different, right? Whether you're looking at the Christian left or the Christian right, it looks a lot like the non-Christian left and the non-Christian right in so many ways. The political has trumped the spiritual in so many ways. And in the places where we do look different, we've done it in such weird ways that aren't life-giving or joy-producing, right? They're not, they're not beautiful and compelling, but they're often separatist and fearful and anxious and just weird. I have plenty of stories. I, I would share one, but I'd take us too long. I grew up outside of the church for the first half of my life, and I can distinctly recall episodes of my experiencing the weirdness of Christians. And there have been a number of points in my life where I've gotten to the point where I've said, I will never, ever hang out with Christians ever again. That did not work. Here I am today. But I have definitely gotten to those points largely because of the strangeness with which Christians have tried to figure out what it looks like to be different and not always in good ways. 
Conduct yourselves differently in a good way, Paul is saying, that reflects the character of God to your neighbors rather than simply reflecting the character of the broader society. So he explores that in two spheres, right? Um, the sphere of sexuality and the sphere of our work or economic life. So if you look at just verses four to six, Paul instructs the Thessalonians to abstain from two specific kinds of sexual activity. One called fornication, an admittedly awkward word. It's not one we typically use, but our translators of this give us that one to work with. Uh, fornication and exploitation. So this word that's translated here is fornication. Um, it's really used kind of broadly to describe the variety of sexual activities that occur outside the context of a marriage. And the rationale that he gives here, Paul gives here, for abstaining from this kind of sexual activity may not be exactly what we expect. It's, it's to say that the people of God aren't slaves to their passions anymore. That what God has done in Christ and in the Spirit is freeing in a way that they may not fully be grasping. Now remember, this is a church comprised primarily of non-Jewish people, of the Greek people in Thessalonica. And in Greek society, there were commonplace practices that would have been difficult, probably, to disassociate from. In the non-Jewish sector of Thessalonian society, which is what the majority of the society was, it would have been generally accepted as common sense that free males were free to engage in sexual relations outside of marriage as they like. Most free men would have considered it their right, uh, and they likely weren't encountering many who would have suggested otherwise. It was just the way things were done in their society. And then this general cultural attitude of tolerance, if you, if you will, was expressed in both social and religious practices of the day. So there were, if you were an elite person, for example, it wouldn't have been uncommon to be invited to lavish parties with excessive food and drink, prostitutes, um, and those things were even ritualized in some ways in the pagan worship services. And in Thessalonica, a port city, uh, that would have been specifically true in the cult of the Caibri, who are these gods who were seen as promoters of fertility and protectors of seafarers, and their cultic practices reflected those themes. Um, and so what Paul is saying as he's writing to this audience of the followers of Jesus in this Greco-Roman city is be different in a good way. Be different in a way that reflects the character of God to your neighbors. Live in a way that is actually distinguishable from those who don't know Christ and don't have the liberating Holy Spirit living among them. And he talks about the Spirit you know, the rationality gives for, for refraining from this kind of activity is simply, you're free. You're not a slave to your passions the way your neighbors are. So live in a way that actually makes that visible to them. Live in a way that makes that freedom compelling to them because you have a deeper freedom that is more beautiful and more life-giving to not be driven by your passions, but to be driven by the spirit of life. And then Paul gives this sterner warning about not sexually harming or exploiting another member of the community. And here the rationale is not just the missed opportunity of what will others see, but he says actually the Lord will come as the avenger, right, on behalf of the victim. And I recognize that even as I preach this sermon, I can't say the word avenger without at least acknowledging that it 
Currently, a movie of that very title is on its way to becoming the highest grossing film of all time, probably next week. But I promise I won't try to make any ridiculous parallels. It's just a trigger word. Be different in a good way. Be different in a Jesus way. Business as usual in Thessalonica, in the realm of sexuality, was one where casual, shallow sexual encounters were relatively normal for people of status who had access to that kind of privilege. And sexual exploitation was common practice, uh, as it is in our day today, right? The Me Too movement has exposed in a much clearer way just how true that is and how widespread that is. So if you think about business as usual in our world, our sexual normal, if you will, what does the call to holiness look like for us? What is the call to embark on being different in a good way, in a Jesus way, look like? Well, what is our... What is business as usual for us? I think there's so much you could say about it, right? And, and there's most, yeah, it's hard not to say too much or too little about it, probably. But at very minimum, I think we could say that our sexual normal is a normal of individualism, identity politics, and confusion. We live in a moment of extreme confusion regarding human sexuality. It's a moment in which the prevailing assumptions of our day are that sexuality is both all-important and not important at the same time, right? It's, an, it's a first-order issue of identity, yet actions really are not that big of a deal. As the saying goes, it's just sex, right? And of course, any level-headed outside observer watching us inside the fishbowl uh, who's not breathing the air we breathe and swimming in the waters in which we'd swim, would look upon that and recognize the insanity and the impossibility of relating to sexuality in a way that's both all-important and not important at the same time. But we're not outsiders. We're insiders. We can't possibly transcend our time and place. We're part of it. We're steeped in that world, and I certainly am not pretending to see clearly all these things. I know I can't, and I don't. But what I, can, I, what I think this text is calling us toward is to a reframing of the things we take for granted, and just a call back to say, can you reimagine your assumptions in light of what Jesus models in the way of love? Can you rethink a way of relating to your own sexuality that is first and foremost about honoring others, about honoring them with your body, about actually looking upon others in love, not to use them for your own gratification, but to impart honor upon them the way Christ has loved you? And can you think about stewarding your sexuality in a way that's not ever exploitative, right? Not ever using another person to their detriment and your advantage. Not ever using your power for another's harm, but always to bless, always to love, and to do that open-handedly, being willing to hear yeses and nos from both God and neighbor as you move forward in a way of love. At minimum, I think the call to holiness in our moment is a call to say, our assumptions about the way we do sex in our world might be crazy. So maybe we should listen to Jesus and the apostles and to think about how we might be transformed in the way of love. And even as we do that, we should probably also be reminded that the call here is not to 
point fingers at other people for how they might be getting it wrong, but to bring our own lives in deeper union and communion with Christ and repentance and faithfulness, to steward our own sexuality in greater love and health and joy, not to get in fights with our neighbors about how they're doing it wrong. Let's move on to the next sphere. Verses 11 and 12. The call to holiness in the way we relate to our work and economic life. Paul says, but we urge you, beloved, to do so more and more, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we directed you, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is what the logic of the cross begins to look like when it upsets the business-as-usual logic of the work world, the economic world of the Thessalonians. So business as usual in Thessalonica, in the, in the working world, was the patronage system. It was this network of client-patron relationships where the way you get ahead in life is you, you get acquainted with someone who's more powerful than you. You get in with them, you give them honor, and they give you favors. It might be financial assistance, it might be some sort of like, you know, vouching for you in some professional way. It's a, it's a game of playing the network and leveraging your own status relative to others. And it's this whole sort of pyramid scheme with the emperor at the top. And so even patrons would be clients of greater patrons, right, all the way up, brokering these relationships to get what they can. But what it created was this whole network of dependence. And what Paul is saying here is... He's saying, live in a way and work in a way that you're dependent upon no one. Don't play the game the way everyone else plays it. Be different in a good way, in a Jesus way, in the way you engage your work. This public life, it was structured around these networks, uh, and that's just the way things were in the Greco-Roman society. But if you imagine the potential problems that could come for the church, as they are leveraging their relationship with a patron where loyalty to the patron would have been their social currency, well, what happens if the patron wants something from them that would compromise their allegiance or loyalty to God? It was very common to come and worship at the emperor shrine, the emperor cult. What happens when your patron would want you to participate as one of his crew in something that's going on at one of the pagan temples? How would you even navigate that world? And you can think about how it would be a potential problem inside of the church as well. What happens if inside the church, the relationships among us began to be this kind of like negotiating network of leveraging different kinds of status and different levels within some sort of hierarchy? How would it be possible in a world like that to live in the spirit of what Paul calls Philadelphia, the brotherly and sisterly love of mutuality, family love, how would that kind of mutuality and interdependence even be possible if the worldly system of leveraging status, leveraging resources, were working its way into the life of the church? Paul says, actually do something different. Live quietly. Don't basically be uh, self-promoting in that way. Uh, mind your own affairs. Don't be obsessed with the affairs of patrons, right? Don't be obsessed with the game. And work with your hands. Work that was potentially considered undignified that people would try to get out of. He would say, no, this is actually a means by which you can bless others 
and become independent from a donor, a patron, that might hinder your ability to love others. And he begins to cast this vision of a different sort of way of relating to one another in the church, a different sort of status that is desirable. What would it look like to become a patron in the church? It would not be to have the most lackeys who are coming to you and singing your praises and giving you honor, but it would be the one who exemplifies the cross-shaped love of Christ most clearly through acts of love and service toward others to prop others up rather than to prop themselves up on the backs of others. It's revolutionary. And Paul is saying, engage your work life. Engage your economic life. Engage your life in the community relationally in a way that is different in a good way, in a Jesus way, that's not playing the the ladder-climbing game of self-promotion, that's not playing the networking game of using people who might slingshot you forward. But the networking game becomes one of how many people can I prop up? And the ladder climbing game is something that happens only as you enter more deeply into participating with God in what God is doing in the world and God makes your life fruitful. What would it look like in your own life to allow this Jesus way, this way of holiness, to re- Tune your imagination so that the way you relate to both sexuality and work would be transformed by the love of God toward you in Christ to which he calls you to live toward others in the world. I'm going to come back to Rowan Williams just to close because he tells this story in his book about his friendship with Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Um, And he tells it because he claims uh, Desmond Tutu as a friend in whom he himself, Rowan Williams, has encountered this kind of holiness that Paul is commending to the, to the Thessalonians here um, and that Williams himself desires as he's commending it in his book. And he says, he says that, you know, I, I can think of two kinds of egotists, he says. That's the word he uses. Those that are so in love with themselves that they have no room for anybody else and those that are so in love with themselves that they make it possible for everybody else to be in love with themselves. They are at home in their skins. It doesn't mean they're arrogant or self-obsessed or think they are faultless. They have learned to sense some of the joy that God takes in them. And in that sense, Desmond Tutu manifestly loves being Desmond Tutu. There's no doubt about that. But the effect of that is not to make me feel frozen or shrunk. It makes me feel that just possibly, by God's infinite grace, I could one day love being Rowan Williams, in the way that Desmond loves being Desmond Tutu. Doesn't make you feel frozen or shrunk, but simply comes from having some sense of the joy that God takes in them. Friends, God is pleased with you. Do you know that? God delights in you. God rejoices in you. In Christ and the Spirit, He set you free to live differently in a good way in the world, and he's even embodied in Jesus what that looks like in human skin. Being holy is not some endeavor to aim at human perfection or rule-keeping, but it's simply being taken over by the extraordinariness of God, that that becomes what we're truly interested in more than anything else, and that begins to shine through us in the world. 
in a way that is contagious and joy-giving and good? Will you receive that gift and live into it in the coming weeks, in the coming days, even in the coming hour? This is our calling in Christ. May God give us grace that it would be so. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you have given us your son, Jesus. You've given us your spirit. We admit that we live in a world that is confusing and broken, and we admit that we have lived brokenly inside of it. Um, We admit that we don't know what to do all the time. We don't know what your will is for our life in so many specific kinds of ways. But we do thank you that you are faithful to guide us. We thank you that you're faithful to stick with us and that your love for us doesn't wax and wane according to how we are hot and cold toward you. But rather, you are pleased to move toward us and to draw us toward yourself. And so we ask that you would do just that. Would you help us to live like Jesus in the world? No matter how confusing or how difficult that may be, would you help us to delight in the gift you've given us in Christ for our own sake and for the sake of the world? Amen.